Welcome to the Find the Way podcast. In this show, we will try to explore what is happening in emerging markets and how entrepreneurs, investors, and communities are simply finding the way to make phenomenal things happen, regardless how volatile the environment may sometimes seem. Very nice. So, hey, would you be able to give a little, little of the things you have been working on in so many different fields within Mexico? You're both from Mexico. Um, white variety of industries where you're involved. You're both investing. Um, you have been both operating. Can you share brief things to the audience who are mainly coming from outside of Latin America that what are all the things that you're involved? Alejandra, maybe you want to start. Of course. Um, my name is Alejandra Rios. I've been, um, well, I've, I'm born and raised in Mexico City. I am involved in so many things, I don't know where to start. So I'll just start with whatever comes uh, first. So I am actually the, yeah, I'm the CEO and the part owner of the uh, um, catering and food service company in Mexico City that my father founded. So in Mexico, the um, uh, still most of the big companies are family businesses, uh, like in the rest of LATAM. So I'm part of this family business, and now I've been managing it for five years, trying to grow it, uh, make it more efficient, and uh, and uh, keep the, the, the business going and innovate, innovating. Um, I am also a uh, an investor, an active investor in the startup world in Mexico, in in two different ways. I am actually an investor in several venture capital funds um, in Mexico City and LATAM. One of it is 500 Startups, Amplifica Capital, that has a very gender-focused uh, uh, initiative, and uh, SFA, Solifield Ventures. Um, so these are three of the funds that I invest in. And I've also done... Uh, a couple of angel investments myself. And then that leads me to my other uh, part of uh, investing. That so is, like, uh, like like that was not enough. So that no. now it comes to other part of your professional career. Are you sure that you have, you don't have a similar type of time machine that Hermione had in Harry Potter that she was able to go enough classes? I don't know how you manage your time with this, but okay, keep going, keep going. It's it's not that hard. I, I, I get it done. <laughs> I am... Um, I am also an investor. Um, I started my own fund, a uh, venture capital fund called Meraki Ventures. Um, and with this one, I invest in specifically uh, CPG products and direct-to-consumer companies um, and uh, in the service economy also. Uh, a little bit of tech as well. So I am... Um, I'm a fund manager and uh, I also am a Shark Tank investor. So I am part of the uh, investors of the, the panel of sharks in Shark Tank, Mexico. I've been there for the past three years, uh, being a part of this program where we actually do invest. We uh, make deals with entrepreneurs that come pitch us in the program and uh, invest in all of these types of companies. And I'm a very active investor. I try to really uh, be involved in the development of the business, in growing the business, and in, in just connecting the business to whatever 
uh, they need at the time. And with this, I have in total 22 investments um, through through uh, these different, uh, uh, well, through my fund and my angel investors, investments. Look and at that's that. pretty so much. So do you sleep? Yes. Do you sleep at all? I sleep a lot of hours. More you, you than sleep you sleep a lot of hours. So, so how many hours? Like nine or eight hours. That's <laughs> beautiful. No. No, it's possible. Yes. You can Look do at that. You Look can at that. Everything. You just have to have the right That's people amazing. with you. Agreed. Agreed on that. And then to Claudio. Claudio, you have done so many things as well and impressive things that you're working on. But um, can you share a little bit what, what is yeah, going on uh, in your life? My name is Claudio Schnegel. I was born in Switzerland, but uh, pretty much been living all my life in Mexico, except some... Uh, Four years in Argentina, uh, a year and a half in Madrid while doing my MBA, and, um, uh, and yeah, a couple of months in London. Uh, basically, uh, I met Ale, and we were both um, studying at Tec de Monterrey, so we know each other uh, a long time ago. And uh, I, my first investment was 2010 in a microfinance firm uh, that a very good friend of mine from uh, elementary school founded uh, back then. Called Podemos Progresar. Uh, I actually told Fernando, "Hey, you have to meet Ale. She was working back then in Alsea, I believe." And I said, "We have to bring her over." Uh, it was a bottle. Uh, uh, she had already her plan very set up and very focused. So um, uh, it, it was a mess for for us back then. But I, I mean, it's it's great that uh, things have uh, worked out and we've done things together right now as uh, the positive fruits. It's an investment that. We have together. Uh, I have basically two things. I have like uh, more traditional investments like Podemos Progresar, Finache, uh, which are financial entities. And I've been invested for almost over uh, 10 years uh, average in, in, in those businesses. Um, and then I really enjoy uh, venture capital uh, backed businesses. So what I've done there is I've invested in uh, six funds, CLP, uh, Life Capital, Cometa. Uh, Platinum Venture, Neo Ventures, um, Tux Capital, uh, BFF. Uh, and uh, I have uh, invested as an angel in over uh, 20 companies uh, myself. Goodness. So, so, so guys, at least some of them, some of them have gone been well because you're still playing the game. So it's like you have not lost all of your money. So it's like you, you might know at least a little bit what you're doing. So that's good for, for the show for today. I hope so. So. <laughs> It's still an, an educated get, uh, bet, you know? Sure. Balti, you had something over there? Yeah, so I, I actually wanted to start with uh, with a question that you guys are both investing in startups in the tech ecosystem. And it's a very risky game. Um, some may say that you're burning your cash in this in this game because it's very complex. How do you approach risk or what's your what are your thoughts behind risk in this in this scenario? For me, it's a matter of um, diversity, um, diversifying my investments. So that's why I kind of do my, my thing by being an LP in some funds where uh, I trust the process, I trust their pipeline uh, generation, uh, and I trust their investment thesis. And it is, it is a bet, no? I 
I am fully aware that whatever I invest and how I approach investments is thinking that, yes, everything that I invest, I can lose it. And I'm not afraid to lose it. Oh, I wish I won't, but I'm not afraid to do it. Uh, so I kind of pick the the uh, the candidates that will I think will lead me to a to a good return. And in terms of my investments, the ones that I do personally, um, what I try to do is actually also uh, diversify. You know, try to pick. Uh, from different industries, from different uh, track records, from different backgrounds. And uh, and uh, I do view it as a bet, uh, but uh, it's an educated uh, bet. That's what I like to think. And it's also a long-term investment. So that's, I don't want to see my money return the three or five years even. No, I view these investments as a 10-year uh, horizon, investment horizon. And Claudio? Yeah, I, I agree with Ale. Uh, for me, it's also a educated bet or educated uh, investment, uh, uh, kind of flip coin, uh, where I know I can lose all that money. And uh, knowing that I can lose it all, uh, my thinking is, okay, if I lose it, I don't have to take my kids out of school. I don't have to move back with my parents or uh, just kind of drastically change my lifestyle, uh, you know? So that's, uh, that's the first thing Then uh, also I try to be uh, very diversified in terms of um, the number of startups that I invest in. Uh, that's why I have over 20 because uh, I believe that uh, probably uh, it's going to be uh, not even a Pareto, but um, 10% will give me the return of the fund or of my investment plus uh, the gain that will allow me to keep investing. And the other ones are going to be either uh, maybe uh, just uh, dead or uh, like a friend told me, like uh, walking some between the Condesa where they keep on uh, living off the uh, um, bootstrapping that they're on. But as an investor, you won't see a, a return. Um, yeah. And uh, the second thing I figured out also is that um, if you invest in, in a very early stage like Ali and myself uh, do, you need to have certain control of what's happening with the company when bad times arrive. So uh, rather than just uh, praying that uh, entrepreneurs will be able to solve the problem, you have to be that support where they can come to you and ask for advice for a, a network connection that will help them, I don't know, get a loan or get us a, a deal that will allow them to keep afloat while they'll still figure out uh, what the next steps are. So uh, when I invest, I actually try to see if there's a match between myself and the founders in terms of uh, ideology, in terms of uh, just uh, good communication and if what the startup is trying to achieve something that I can, uh, given my network and my uh, advice, help them with. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that we have now, if we focus a little bit on the educated bet that you both are emphasizing over here, we have talked a lot with this about Belti and multiple other entrepreneurs all around the world, but now specifically in the past 12 months in Latin America. Are you really educating yourself before you're making the bet? Is it, or is it going to be only a gut feeling that, hey, you like this 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 girl or boy who who's making something cool and then you think that, oh, this is amazing. Everybody can be great at selling. So what do you really mean by an educated bet? Do you have a process behind it? 
Or is this is something that this looks sexy, this feels amazing, we got to go in? I think it, it happens both ways, no? I, I mean, uh, during my investment time, I've had definitely both types of investments. I would say that right now I try always to have um, a process behind it, which I can talk about or let Claudia talk about it more. But uh, obviously have a process. But what I think of uh, as the most important factor before I, I invest is do I have, and this is what Claudio was saying um, in the second part of his uh, answer, is what can I bring to the table for this investment? And uh, that's uh, a, a lot of my decision making is based on that. Is can I actually help this company grow, uh, be um, have better unit economics, have better connections, sell more? Uh, be more efficient or like go through their journey uh, better and faster and easier uh, or not. So sometimes I see some of these investments that are really sexy and that I see that I can make a good return and whatever. But if I can't really help in any way or I can't, I won't be able to help uh, in in a moment of um, stress or down downturn or whatever, then I I won't invest because then I think of my I think that I become a passive investor and one of my very uh, uh like focused things that that I do when I invest is that I want to be an active investor and if I don't have the capabilities or the knowledge or the experience to be an active investor. Uh, because I don't know the industry, I don't know the business model or whatever, then I don't invest. Those kinds of investments, I, I'm kind of exposed to those as an LP in other funds. But the investments that I make myself, I will only make if I can add something to the table and if I can help if things get rough. In a way that if you, you know, like I, I see that you have a consensus of this, that what you're, that you're aligned with your thinking of this, but if you will be able to dive deeper into then the process that you were talking about over there, and, and this is, makes very clear that both of you have this, you're, you're evaluating your, your opportunities in a way that can you contribute, can you elevate the companies one way or another. But then when you're doing this process and you're evaluating these things, it's like what the process over there continues. If we now separate into two different categories, you as an LP and then you as an as an angel or making direct investments, Claudio, if you were to be able to start a little bit over there, and especially from an LP point of view, um, what type of process you really have there to more educate bets? Uh, in terms of an LP, it's it's just um, uh, trusting the partners that are running the fund, kind of seeing their track records and their uh, critical thinking uh, process, so you can either uh, match and identify with them and help them out somehow, but it's uh, not as uh, active for me as it is with the angel investments that I do. And just uh, uh, adding on what Alan was saying, what I try to do is, um, and this is kind of an analogy, you know, um, when you hire a bodyguard, pretty much every bodyguard will tell you he's able to kick some ass. You know, he's able to bend himself, he's able to go in a street fight and uh, be the winner. And uh, uh, you might see him like tall, buff, and uh, old, like 
gym uh, muscly. But uh, once, but you really want to see if, uh, if you put him on the street fight, how it's going to respond, you know? Uh, and uh, if he gets knocked out by the first punch he gets, then you're in trouble. So uh, what I try to do with, with the founders as well is... Uh, so you, you yeah, go fight with them. You're you throw put them, them in the ring. I, like, I, I saw it on your WhatsApp picture that Claudia, you definitely for the audience, Claudia did not need a bodyguard. He can kick some ass like for real like when he goes into... So your background... And, and... <laughs> Exactly. So that's your approach. You you put them yeah. in the ring and you put them in an MMA ring and you see that how they can handle you. I think that's your process. Exactly. So let's say they're uh, doing something for uh, the catering industry, you know, where they're innovating something. And it makes sense to me. And uh, what they're telling me is uh, has a logic behind it. And so I'll just give Ali a call, ask them, uh, ask Ali and her team if I can make an introduction and see how they go through that process and what the feedback is. Uh, I don't want to like push Ali to make a decision just because uh, we have a friendship and a partnership. I really want to see if what they're proposing will add value to Ali and her company. And uh, that won't cost me anything. And I will see them in action and uh, what they actually perfect, uh, where their opportunities are and uh, how we can work together to make the product even better. And uh, at the end, I think still Latin America has a very... Um, more uh, network uh, of uh, people that run, like I was saying, the family-owned businesses that uh, are going to become or are trying to uh, be the most of the uh, startup clients or uh, suppliers. So you can test that fairly easy, I would say. Mm -hmm. So you're forcing them into the arena. Pretty nice. <laughs> exactly. And see how they, they respond. Now I see what you did to me the other day when you brought some entrepreneurs <laughs> pitching their business. Exactly. I should have been talking around them. <laughs> I'm going to be super nice. <laughs> so you have this good cop and bad cop. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what I did as, a, as an LP looking for funds to invest is I interviewed a bunch of them. Um, I talked to some of their entrepreneurs who, who they uh, financed and they invested in and how their relationship is, how their approach is, how they actually uh, selected them as an investment. I look at their track record. I, um, I look to see if their values match with mine. And since I'm I, always looking for... Um, uh, diversity and investments where there is diversity because I strongly believe that diversity brings better returns. I actually question uh, their, their, the composition of their team and I take into account if there, there is a diverse team behind that funds. Uh, so, I mean, uh, that's the process that I do at selecting funds where I invest. You know, uh, when I select companies, I have two different processes. So the first is the companies that come to me through Shark Tank. And that's a very straightforward process where I can't control a lot of things. But you have never seen uh, Shark Tank. What happens is we are a panel of five investors where uh, companies come and pitch to us in like uh, maybe five or seven minutes. They do a five or seven minute initial pitch. We try the product, we see them in action, and uh, on the spot, 
after asking some questions, after doing some diligence in the spot, we decide if we invest or not. Um, it's hard because uh, it's hard to really know uh, if they're going to be a good investment in a 30-minute or 40-minute uh, conversation, right? And, but I, I do think and I am convinced that you can uh, recognize talent and uh, resilience and some of the values that I look for in an investment in that first meeting, no? in that first moment in a high pressure environment. Uh, but then after that, uh, what happens is I do a very lengthy due diligence process. Um, so after I say yes, and I commit to a deal on, on the time, um, I do a very lengthy due diligence process. In that process, a lot of these fell through, fall through, right? For, for most people, yeah. due diligence is something very uh, far away. What do, what do you mean when you do this due diligence? Do you get into their uh, accountants? Do you get into their, with their lawyers? What, what are you doing exactly? Perfect. The first thing that I do is I actually, um, I want to verify that Everything that they said on the on that initial meeting is true. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you told me that you sold a uh, hundred thousand dollars worth of this product, and then this, and that your EBITDA was this, and that your uh, um, your um, your numbers are whatever, 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 and your track record, and who is involved, and who your customers are. Okay. Now I want to see proof that that's true. Where are your numbers? What is, where is your bank account, your bank statement? Uh, I want to talk to some of your clients. Uh, and I do like this initial uh, check to see if everything that they mentioned in that meeting is true. Then I do uh, also two other types of checks. So a financial check, more in-depth, looking at their financial statements, their bank statements, their bank account, all of that. And I do a legal check to see if all of their uh, legal paperwork is in order, if their their corporate structure is good, if they don't have any legal problems with anyone else, if uh, uh, they have uh, the contracts with the clients that they're mentioning, if they have the uh, uh, paperwork backing their um, their brand. Uh, uh, registry and all of those kinds of things. And I also do a fiscal check. If they they are paying their taxes, if they're in good standing with the fiscal authority, if they uh, don't have any lawsuits or, or any problems on that end. And finally, I do a, a labor check to see if they actually don't have any lawsuits from employees, if they're paying their employees uh, in the right way, if they don't have any liabilities on that end. So what I try to check is that if I become an investor in this building, uh, in, this, in this project, I won't be buying into a liability. No, I won't be buying into mm -hmm. a lawsuit or a problem with the tax office or a problem with the um, with employees that I'm going to have to get out of later on. So that's basically what I mean when I say due diligence. I do tax due diligence, legal due diligence, um, 
labor due diligence and um and and the financial uh diligence and that takes time and that takes uh, and who's do, who's doing that who's doing that, that for, for claudio us. for you and I? yeah so first of all the all of the financial and the business diligence i do it myself with an analyst that i have on my team so it's only the two of us and we do that part and then i have outside lawyers uh who i pay um for every diligence that i ask them to make so what i do is i'm going to see if i invest in this company what information do you need and i have this uh guideline uh checklist of information that i ask them and i send it all over to them and ask them to to check all the paperwork and i also have a tax lawyer that helps me check all of the tax stuff and the labor stuff um and these are contractors i i i pay them for every deal that they check for me and uh and i trust their judgment and i trust that they're going to protect my money and my uh my funds in case uh, i do decide to make an investment and for the investments that i do outside of shark tank i do it on the opposite way i get a pitch deck first I do a financial and uh, and business check first to see, okay, send me all of your information and I'll check it, do a pitch to me and I'll go through it. I'll talk to some of the customers. I'll talk to some of uh, their, um, their suppliers and whatever. And once I've done that, then I see the entrepreneurs. I see if their uh, business... Uh, if, they're, if what they're saying matches with what I've seen before and what I've heard, so I kind of have that double check. And then if I decide to go through with this uh, diligence, oh, I have an investment committee who meets, we meet and we get the pitch uh, done to us. And uh, if we decide to pursue the diligence, so we don't decide to invest on the spot, we decide to continue um, investigating more of this business and if we decide to do that and that's uh, done with uh, a majority vote and with, if we decide to do that, then we do the due diligence the way I uh, talked to you before about it and if everything goes well we then um, decide if we want to go through, after reviewing all the information if we decide if we want to go through with the investment. The, the, the difference with the Shark Tank deals and the other deals is that on the Shark Tank deals, I commit to an investment before I see all the numbers, but then I have a chance to check if, if, if what Everything they said is, is true. Is but I can't change the deal, you know? I've already committed to a deal and evaluation. So you make this due diligence process, which is very lengthy, and you go into super detail for startups. Do you do the same for the funds that you're investing in, in both cases? Do you still go into the these all these aspects? Yeah, uh, in in terms of a fund, uh, I really do it very easy. I just see that um, once I've made my decision because I trust the partners who are running the fund, I understand the thesis that they're going to be focusing on, and I know that I somehow can bring value to the fund uh, or, or to the fund's uh, portfolio firms. Uh, I just check that the fiscal structure is uh, is well done. 
And uh, in, in that case, it's not that really hard because uh, most of the funds uh, have a similar structure because and uh, uh, the ones that I have, they have already some um, more institutional investors that require that structure to be created in order for them to be able to invest. So uh, basically, uh, for me, it's a, a, a cheap due diligence because they have someone else who is putting more money to it for me, you know, like a, a Forte or a big family office. So uh, I just hop in and uh, hope for the best in, the, in that case. So let's say that the, the diligence process is more checking who are the big investors in that fund before you. And if you exactly. So, uh, like, uh, like if if I would do some Shark Tank investment, I will just hire Alan to do the uh, due diligence. <laughs> so then, over there is basically now. If we look at when you make as an LP an investment into the fund, and now what we are seeing, let's say in the market, in, in a couple of years back in twenty one, there was also after that there was a lot of new funds that we are being creating in Latin America. First time managers, a lot of money we were, it was funneled into companies with high valuations. The market was getting out of control. And now we're in a couple of years after a lot of these funds have allocated their, their first round of capital and they have, they're expecting for the follow ons. Uh, but a lot of them will have tough time raising their new funds. Um, how are you basically now as an LP? communicating and continuing it. What type of information are you expecting throughout the, the life cycle that you are in an LP? It's an illiquid investment that you're expecting to, to stay on top for a long time. But um, how are you engaged? How do you communicate? What do you expect in return that you're an LP? Is there something that you can share for, for, for this? So uh, it, it, it's a very interesting question that I've been talking about this with the managers of, of the funds. And uh, also with the founders. And um, overall, what I understand, and uh, anyone uh, can just cut me and correct me if I, if, if you guys think I'm wrong, but uh, the, the, a VC has two sources of income. Uh, the management fee that they charge and uh, then the carry that, that they will get from um, the exit and uh, uh, yeah of the success of uh, investments that they make. Uh, so basically you raise a fund and your idea is to be uh, as an LP and as a, as a GP uh, or a, a managing partner uh, in the fund for about seven, eight years uh, until you start seeing some exits. And in, in about the year number 10, you should be able to see your capital plus hopefully the, of the return of uh, your investment which uh, in, in an average, what I've seen it close to a 2.5x of your investment. So that's, uh, I mean, you have the outliers, you know, the, the ones that maybe invested early in Facebook or in Google or uh, here on um, Corner Shop, for example, which is probably the, the biggest success story of an exit and, uh, as, uh, as far as uh, I'm, uh, I know, you know from a, a very strong exit, but uh, that's pretty much it. So as an LP, uh, you get another, um, you get the request to invest in the new fund after about six or seven years from the first uh, fund running. So I think LPs start questioning the fund if they haven't seen either a huge portfolio appraisal or a real return on their investment. So uh, given the market situation, it is, 
something that uh, the venture capitals are starting to consider how they should keep approaching because um, if they hadn't returned the, the capital, at least as of today, if the fund started uh, six, seven years ago, uh, it's very likely given the situation that uh, in, in the next couple of two years, maybe uh, there's going to be a big exit happening uh, that will pay back the capital plus uh, um, um, the carry uh, for, for the partners and also the uh, investment that uh, or the return on the investment that the LPs make. Um, so uh, I think for me as a, as a small LP, it's not that much of a problem because I can still go on and uh, wait another two years. Uh, where I see that it, it becomes difficult, it's uh, for the uh, institutional investors that they do have to answer to other LPs. I mean, I only have to answer my wife. So, you know, so. Uh, but it can be a tough, it can be a tough audience though. So it's like, you yeah. know, you better care, take care of your portfolio, you know. But if you have to answer to 10 uh, or to 20 different uh people on the board or so, it, it can be harder. So uh, I think people who are getting into venture capital uh, investment should know that there's this probability given the, the cycles uh, that we go through, that it's going to take a longer time to get the money back and just let the, the market flow somehow. No, what I would just add to that is that, uh, for example, in my case, and as Claudio also uh, talked about this. Uh, I try to also be involved in the fund. No, every one of these funds has their um, annual meetings, has uh, their portfolio, uh, has like meeting social gatherings with their portfolio companies, has this, uh, uh, has different events where they where you can interact with them with their portfolio companies with their uh, uh with their other lps and uh, uh and with um, their partners no so i think a good thing to do as an lp is to be involved in all of these uh different events maybe not all of them but to try to uh uh keep in touch uh, not just like give your money away if that's it wait 10 years till you get it back and hope that by the end, you will get a good return and, and that's it, no? But uh, try to be involved during the life of the, the fund. Try to see, okay, be involved, see that you can help any of the portfolio companies, uh, understand their pipeline uh, generation process, be involved in their annual meetings. And that way, uh, you can kind of see how they work, no? It's like... Being a customer of, if you invest in a restaurant, right? You go and you see, okay, you bring your friends, you check how they're doing, you see their sales, you go to their annual reports or their annual meetings and you you keep involved, right? And when, when this restaurant wants to open up a new location, then you know what they've been doing. You've been part of that process and you can... Yeah. Kind of decide, okay, I liked what they did. I liked how they handled this and this uh, uh, bad like uh, time or not. And then that gives you the confidence to see, okay, you'll invest again if they ever raise another fund or they open a new location or not. And I think that's very valuable. And that's something that we 
have to uh, keep in mind during the when we do these investments. And and on this, on the, you mentioned about these events that you're going and gathering, and you know, both of you are very active, you know, on on a socially, and and you have a very, you know, uh, widely known brands, especially in the ecosystem of Latin America. But these events that you were talking about over there, I have to ask: Are these really? Worth your time, or is this only a way for rich people to tap their shoulders so that they, they, they can show up and do you know a way that they they been there? Because one of the things that was a very interesting last month, one of the wealthiest men in Finland called Björn Valrus, who is the chairman or former chairman of Nordea, one of the biggest banks um, of the Nordics, basically said that the biggest fear of the new technology era for wealthy people is that. They will start little by little losing money and thus their relevance in the game. And therefore, they don't get these sexy invitations and the nice dinner and cocktail parties where you can go and hire, put your still sort of status into a higher level. So are these really, you know, useful events overall or are these a way for, for people to increase their social status? I think it can be both, right? Uh, uh, you and most some of these events, you can totally see right through it that they're only uh, events for like fundraising or just like to to see who has the best watch or the biggest car or whatever. No, <laughs> but uh, but but you have to be able to to see which ones uh, matter. For example, the ones that I attend uh, are the ones that are uh, where I can meet the portfolio companies to the founders. That's the one where I see value because I learn from them. I see how they're doing from, from them, not only from the fund that is telling me, oh, this company is doing great. It's going to raise another uh, round and it's, uh, we're making so much money. It's already uh, valued at whatever. No, I try to go and, and talk to them, see what their challenges are, see, and also, uh, so it's my way of connecting to the actual people that are I am investing in, you know, the companies that I am investing in. So I think um, you have to be able to detect uh, those types of uh, events. I think that's the ones that I intended. Yeah. How about for you, Claudio? Is like, are you becoming better at filtering the ones that are only for, you know, show off or have? <laughs> I, I, I think in, in my case, I might come off at antisocial because I don't actually go to pretty much, uh, any Look events. I maybe go uh, to two events a year, uh, because, uh, uh well, this is something personal. I hate uh, going late to bed. So it just disrupts my whole, uh, morning routine, my training, my, uh, time at family. So, the, uh, my reading time. So it's just something restrictive. So when I do go to uh, some events, I try to make it very specific who I want to meet, what I want to like uh, have an agenda, who I'm meeting. Yeah. And uh, on the other hand, I also believe it, it depends on the type of uh, brand that you're building for yourself. And there is no correct answer on what type of brand you should have. You know, I see, for example, Ali has built an amazing brand for herself and she has uh, such a wide audience that, um, for someone to be able to have uh, 15 minutes of Alice time, it, it, it takes a lot of, uh, of effort and uh, 
being persistent and uh, knocking on Alice's door until she has like time to, to get uh, a meeting for 50 minutes or 30 minutes to have her one-on-one. So uh, just uh, if I would be a uh, founder and I wanted to get uh, Alice's uh, feedback and knowledge, what I would have to do is I just like see her social network and also see when she's going to be a speaker at a big event because that's where I get the most value of, uh, of, of Alice with uh, yeah, celebrity right now. Uh, on, on the other hand, uh, for me, uh, uh, I, I try to just uh, get 30-minute meetings with the founders that I have in my portfolio, so to say, help them out and have one-on-ones because I believe that's where I can add the most value off because uh, uh, I don't have either such a big brand and also uh, I, maybe my expertise is more on on a one to one basis than uh, going and giving a a, a, a speech to um, to founders that uh, I don't uh, have have around uh, twenty or uh, thirty employees, so it's a big event, you know. I've seen you both, uh, not only Alia, which she puts a lot of work and effort into it, uh, but Kelly, I've seen you too working on your personal brand, and I wanted to know, like, what do you think is the importance? Of having this personal brand uh, because you clearly both think it's important um, and you're both spending time on it so what do you think for me uh it, it it's just a matter of uh trying to get out uh, as a very early stage investor angel investor uh to be able to have more of a deal flow coming to me and uh, um, and allow me to have that uh, one-on-one with founders that I think can be the ones where I invest and have the credibility so that those founders will give me the chance to work with them five, six months to see how they execute and how we match together. Uh, because what would happen before I started trying to like uh, uh, work on my brand as uh, founders would come to me, they would say, hey, we're raising around, uh, we're raising $1 million at an $8 million cap with a save, like 20 death count. And it would sound very, very nice. And I would ask them, okay, when do I have to deposit? And it would be like, probably next week, you know? So uh, <laughs> it, it, it would be a thing of uh, kind of formal because I might lose the deal. Uh, but also I would have very little information besides the deck and our call. So uh, that was the reason why I started to try to just get uh, a brand out for myself and be able to filter better where I want to invest. Yeah. For me, I was kind of forced into it. Uh, I didn't do any <laughs> of this before I was on Shark Tank. Um <clears throat> Uh, and when I got on Shark Tank, I kind of saw it as a good opportunity to uh, to to make good content uh, that I that I thought was missing out there, and it became kind of part of my my job, you no, know, my day to day job. Also, because okay, so for two objectives: one, better deals, like what Claudio said, I can get. Uh, if people know me, if people see my content out there, the types of investments that I make, the value that I can bring, I will get uh, better deals, more earlier deals um, uh, with better conditions maybe than others. And, uh, and I will get access 
to put in money in, in some of the most interesting uh, projects out there, which is not uh, not easy because most of the really, really good deals out there, uh, they reserve the initial capital allocation for people that can actually bring them more to the table than just money. So I'm trying to build my brand in that regard. And uh, also, um, just as an entrepreneur, um, to um, help my company and my companies where I invest. No, I try to be um, be a pos- another positive thing about uh, me becoming your investor. No, that I will become an advocate as well for your brand. Uh, so. Uh, what I try to do in, in some of my contents as well is promote the, the companies that I invest in, help them in, in that way, especially the really early stage companies that maybe don't have a lot of capital to, uh, to promote their, uh, their uh, projects, their products, their services. Uh, I, I kind of, uh, throw that in the, the deal with them, no? I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, um, I'll, I'll be as invested as you to, to want this deal to, or this company to be successful. And so I'll do my part. And part of, uh, doing, doing that is, uh, is the content that I can uh, create and that I can publish about the, the, the brands that I, uh, work with or that I invest. So. I kind of do it uh, for that reason too, and for my personal company, right? My, uh, in the end, I'm in the services, um, I'm in the service industry, I'm in the direct-to-consumer industry, and uh, I want to obviously uh, uh, get uh, my company's name out there as well and have that benefit go, uh, go all the way to, to my actual day job. And, and, and here, if we focus a little bit on, on, on basically that you're emphasizing the quality of the deal flow, it's going to be super, super important. Everybody all around the world talks about it quite a bit. But then if you look at another big concern that a lot of people are giving this reason why there is not enough capital in Latin American technology companies is because there's a lack of exits. So now when you are identifying these very valuable companies or you want to get the best deal flow for you, are you seeing that there is enough good quality companies? Because now what happens is that some of the funds that are, are in, the, in the game, they're not going to be able to raise fund number two, or if they have now, now fund number two, they're not going to go to the three. Um, it's going to be a tough, tough time to be a fund right now as well if you invested in, 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 the, in the upcycle. Uh, what are you basically seeing? Are there enough good quality companies for you to be an LP and then on the side to be an angel investor? If we now focus let's only on Mexico, because what another ad um, on from for for Mexico is for the audience is that Mexico is one of the greatest hubs in terms of technology, but a lot of the entrepreneurs here are outside of Mexico. So then I'm not sure even is there a single one Mexican founder who has created a unicorn. So so this is a little bit of context into this, and so is what are you seeing on on these regards about the good quality companies in Mexico? Are there enough for you to be an LP? And at the same time, an angel investor investing in Mexican technology startups. I think in early stage uh, investing, in early stage uh, 
companies, there is plenty of companies to invest in. I had to say no to some of these companies that I think are very interesting and will have a great future, but I just like uh, can't invest in everything. So I, I, I'm having to turn down some of the invest as an angel investor. Okay. Uh, in yeah. the, in super early stage, uh, in, in, in that regard. So I think that, uh, for sure as an LP, I'll let, uh, Claudio also take a stab at the question. Yeah. Well, uh, as, as an angel, I agree. There, there are plenty of very, very good, uh, companies that can make it big. Uh, but as an LP, uh, I have some questions of, uh, and I've been asking myself this for uh, a couple of months right now. If there, uh, if the gate should change, uh, trying to combine a little bit of the venture capital philosophy of just uh, not not a home run but a grand slam, you know, that you're looking for, uh, versus just having also complementing it by uh, by some like hits. Like in baseball, you know, uh, not trying to go for the home run uh, because when you see, and I'll put the example of Kavak, you know, which is a, a, an amazing company, and what they've done is 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 great. But then, just my question rises, and uh, this is just personal is um, okay. So here is a company that's uh, has a bigger valuation than companies like Semix, for example, or other like old school. Uh, they have more uh, classic uh, uh, ventures uh, in Mexico that have been around for quite some time. Uh, and my question is not if the value is probably correct, but if people, uh, once a company go, go public, will be uh, willing to buy it at that cost and if the market is big enough for that. So uh, if that doesn't happen, um, how does the investment look for uh, the venture and for for us as LPs, you know? Uh, and if your return depends on that, uh, it can be uh, maybe risky or risky there, you know? Because you found this amazing company like Kabak who are building great things who have uh, uh, something very big. But once you have to get it out there uh, and uh, uh, an IPO level, Question is if the market will be ready for for them at the price that you think it's worth. Yeah, yeah. I think we have a real challenge with the um, valuations that were uh, that were invested at uh, in the, the the past. I don't know five years or three three years. I mean, I think that will be a challenge, especially for for these rounds right now. I think it's getting better now, uh, but during the last couple of years, uh, companies have had a really uh, hard time uh, raising money because they're not willing to um, reevaluate uh, uh, their uh, their companies. And they're still thinking that the valuations that were uh, done or the, the rounds that were raised that uh, those valuations are uh, still, how do I say, like um, real, right? So either we wait it out a little bit longer and and see how they're performing, or we start investing at uh, 
the current uh, valuations of the companies and and understand that we can uh, take a step back and then uh, work at it and and still have a good return in the fund in the company whatever. But I think this is one of the most complex things that are happening right now. The um, Mexican or Latin ecosystem, right? Uh, um, and the other thing that I wanted to add, Eric, uh, is that um, I think there is a concentration of the types of companies uh, that uh, are getting the funding. So, for example, I think I think we are all chasing down. Uh, the same few companies uh, and we're not opening ourselves up to other opportunities that could also be uh, great uh, re- uh, great companies that can give you a great return uh, and the grand slams that Claudio was uh, talking about. And, um, we have, I think we're, we've been in the ecosystem in Mexico, we've been very narrow-minded uh, and uh, that that was taking a toll on the uh, on the returns and on the uh, fund allocations and on the ability to to raise more capital. And and I think this is a very critical point to mention. It's that you brought this up is is because very big difference in terms of the funding landscape in Latin America overall versus let's say the global north, the more developed countries, more developed ecosystems. Is that you have if you even have a half a million round, one million dollar round, you're going to have a lot more angels and VCs, a lot of larger cap tables versus in Europe, for instance, there's going to be one investor who wants to take the whole pot of half a million, one, the whole thing. So for you as an LP, are you getting information? Are you seeing this? Do you have very clear portfolio views that are, are you being exposed by your, you want to diversify into multiple funds that basically scatter the, the cap as, as many companies as possible. Are you seeing that your fund or your LP are following the herd and investing in this? How, how well are you now investigating your own portfolio as an LP? That are you seeing this as a problem? Yeah. Um, so definitely, I think I invest personally as an angel. I invest in very different companies. Uh, so I don't see it as much. But for example, the, the, the uh, funds where I invest in, I do see that there's a lot of um, redundancy on the deals that I that I've invested in, um, or that the big funds, not the ones that I'm investing in, but the big funds uh, or the most well-known funds, they're all uh, kind of getting a piece of the same pies. I don't know if that's accurate, Claudio. What would you say? And uh, Claudia, for you, you, yeah. had, like, you had like seven funds where you're an LP, right? Is that correct? Seven. Yeah, I think se- six or seven. But uh, oh, six yeah. Or seven. Uh, and, well, just uh, adding on what uh, we were talking about just before, I, I think there's also something very interesting happening right now where uh, you have a clash of uh, interest happening. Uh, if you're a company that did a serious B and you raised and $150 million uh, and your unit economics are strong enough, you're, uh, you still have money in the bank, you're almost breaking even, let's say, or you're, you're, you did break even. Um, you as the founder of the company don't see the need of, uh, with the times as they are, 
start looking for a new round to keep growing. You rather just stabilize the company, make it profitable, and keep 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 waiting until the uh, until the time comes when you can uh, uh, raise a bigger round and a bigger valuation to just uh, with a more uh, certain aim uh, grow. On the other hand, uh, the VC is going to start pressuring because they want the return. They want another round so they can exit and pay back uh, the LPs. So I think that friction is going to be seen in the next couple of uh, months or even two years. And uh, just uh, the other thing that uh, we were talking about, about the, the diversification, what I think is happening with the bigger funds is that uh, when they create their, their uh, investment thesis, they focused on very specific uh, metrics. Let's say I'm a Series A fund, and what I want to see as attraction is uh, $1 million of ARR. So right now with the situation, uh, there are a lot of companies that don't reach that milestone, but have other strong unit economics, but the company uh, will still take time, uh, maybe a, a year to get to that milestone. And uh, when the managing partner of well, BC and the team see the, this company, they can't invest because of their thesis says that they need to at least see $1 million of ARR, for example. So um, the investment committee is, is not going to be as flexible maybe as them on uh, what company they should invest. And then there's also something interesting happening when you see uh, the deal flow that's coming to the Series A uh, or uh, bridge uh, Series A uh, type of rounds. Uh, since there are not a lot of, um, uh, there's not a lot of money flowing in, the big funds are concentrating those deals and they can cherry pick what they want and they can take their time as well, somehow. So uh, it's, uh, it, it's very interesting what the entrepreneur has to do to be able to raise that round. Absolutely. Absolutely. And overall, if we take a look now from here, is that people are hyping Latin America a lot. Everybody's talking about it. There is this momentum coming in, no matter that there has been a little bit less liquidity compared to 21 in Latin America. Everybody's just super bullish and optimistic, especially with people in Latin America. But if we now take a look on some of the risks that you see in Latin American technology ecosystem, outside of the fact that everybody, hey, there's lack of exits, blah, 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 there's not going to be enough liquid because of that. What are you seeing, let's say, some of structural risks from Mexico down all the way to Ushuaia in Latin America? What, what are you seeing some of the main risks that has to be addressed openly in order to make the ecosystem grow and make a better playing field for companies to operate. Any thoughts on this? <laughs> I, I, I think uh, the, uh, not, it, it, it might not be a risk, but it's an opportunity. Um, you would want to see more exits and it doesn't matter if it's a unicorn exit, but a $500 million exit where founders, invest, early stage investors, uh, and uh, friends and family get back their money plus some sum, that will allow 
those people to put more money in, into the ecosystem because that's how they made, made their money and they have expertise in what worked and what not on one side. On the other side, it will also help uh, companies, more traditional companies, to start looking uh, to the startups that are building this amazing technology for uh, uh, their company uh, to work with uh, and give them a, a, an easier chance to be a, a supplier or to work with, or even uh, in some cases, just to challenge them and compete with them and see them as a threat uh, uh, that they have to take a close look or even invest in so they, uh, they don't become like the, uh, the blockbuster of, uh, of the movies and uh, entertainment. Uh, so I, I really hope that uh, that starts happening because uh, what I've talked with people from the U.S., from uh, Asia that are coming to Mexico to, uh, or in Latin America to build a company, uh, what they tell me is that, hey, I've seen how this movie plays out. Uh, what you were seeing in Mexico, uh, that's what happened maybe 10 years ago, five years ago in, my, in our uh, continent and in our country. So I know how it's going to work out here. And it's just a matter of time. But then this is like overall, like, do you have something on, on this? Is that are, are there something something else that you're seeing as a, as a, as a risk? Probably this is a very valuable point that you're mentioning. And, and as you mentioned, it provides an opportunity to, to capitalize on this uh, when we are starting to get those exits. But like, before we get into that level, are you seeing some some risks that can be fundamental um, in, in, in the market? For instance, one of the things that we have witnessed um, is, is that still right now, what comes into the expectations of the entrepreneurs in Latin America and the, and the valuations that they're putting, they're now being educated by fund managers to go more in the American model. They're trying to push the, like, the valuations higher up with no any reason underneath. And the simple reality is that why a lot of investors, especially outside of Latin America, when they expect when they come to the region is that the prices of the company should be a lot lower. When you look at that the risks are just a lot higher, that risk is going to cost some money in terms of the valuation that you have. And then overall is that the, 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 a lot of the fintech boom that is happening, even though there is a great opportunity to scale, but a lot of those companies are local and regional. They can make nice money there. They can become 50 to 100 million companies. But this risk that let's say we are also experiencing is, is that there is this outrageous valuations that are being still asked in this market by the companies not that like not necessarily even raised a high valuation in 21 they're just recently found companies and right at the gate are still asking way too much in our so what are you seeing this and claudio for instance as a risk um because this in my opinion prohibits more capital to be funneled into latin america is that they're going to say hell no like the investors in Europe, Middle East, Asia, they're going to look at it. Oh, well, why should I put any penny in this? That, that it's just I can I can invest in a company in, in Europe and make more money. And when we look at the, some of the success cases that are happening, the big success cases in Latin America, for instance, Rappi. If you were at a pre-seed investor or seed and a founder, you join in Series A and beyond, a tough time. You, you're seeing your 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 numbers in red. So. This is a little bit of context of that. Are, are you seeing something similar as a risk that, that the market is still facing? Because there's so much hype that is going to be needed in order to bring the ecosystem to the level that, hey, it's more stable. But beneath the hype, you need to have something. You know, under the, you know, the hood, you need to have an engine that is rock solid. Yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah I, I agree, Eric. Uh, but I have been seeing entrepreneurs and founders and uh, managers that are 
uh, right now more focused on having like the end, the best, the best engine out there, you know, and okay. I really focused on, uh, making that engine work, uh, before going to, uh, raise another round. So I think, or some of the companies in Mexico have really paused and, uh, and, uh, have paused their fundraising activities have bootstrapped uh, their their companies and uh, have focused on uh, profitability. And I think that's good because they're being more realistic. And I think some of the times it has happened because the, the fundraising game was getting hard for them and for companies like them. They were going out there asking for uh, valuations that were like, not being like uh, taken seriously or uh, not getting funded at the right valuation. And they decided to pause and rethink and restructure and, and change their, their approach. And I've seen these on some of the biggest companies out, uh, out there in Mexico. No, um, uh, some of the companies like uh, Rappi, like, uh, uh, and I, and I mean the, 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 the parts in Mexico, no, a corner shop, uh, este, uh, what else? Like Mercado Libre, Kavak is trying to do that, no? Uh, este, uh, what else? Pizzo, no? These, uh, yeah. unicorns, the unicorns in Mexico, I've seen that they have, at least the founders, maybe they're not there yet, but they're, they're taking more seriously the fact that they need to have something under the hood uh, to be able to raise the money that they want. And this money. is important because it's, uh, at the end of the day, also what, what, what has been happening the past couple of years is as a founder in, in Latin America, if you can raise a half a million okay, in, in, in the US or in Europe, that is not going to go far. You know, you're you're going to burn that in a matter of months, super quick. But if you're, you know, a Chilean, Bolivian, Peruvian, Ecuadorian founder, nevertheless living in Argentina, if you raise half a million dollars and you get a little bit of access to dollars, with $1,500, you live a very, very comfortable life. So then it's like you can just as founder go into founder events and tap your shelf in the shoulder and say, hey, I'm, I'm a cool founder. And this is what we also see happening in the past couple of years. Entrepreneurship has become such a cool thing. It's so sexy. A lot of people have not really, really focused on developing the engine. They have been polishing up the outlier of that car, or that vehicle. But luckily, like this is like a, it starts to change. Ale, what you're mentioning, I think this is like a critical, critical thing that that needs to happen all around the world, but especially in Latin America, because when once they raise the money, uh, we see this big, big fundamental problem. Because if you raise a little bit of cash, you can with that little cash, you can surely live rather comfortably so and if you raise that from from an foreign investor they're going to just well they're not burning any money but the founder is is just going to founder events all around latin america and living the life but not really building the engine if, if that makes sense yeah 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 for me it's interesting because uh you see uh, that happening in the ecosystem where they race around they can live very comfortably with the money that they get uh keep shining the uh the outside of the uh, of the car make it pretty and just have this narrative on social network uh, of what they're creating, what they what this huge thing is going to be. Create the hype and just justify what they why they just 
can buy expensive sneakers, you know, uh, because they're entrepreneurs. And, 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 and they're not focusing on the fundamentals. Okay. Uh, let's say I'm authentic and I uh, think uh, people need pen cards because uh, uh, a lot of people here in Latin America don't have access to pen cards, which is great. So I start uh, burning not that much money, but just giving away pen cards for free. And my uh, metric is I have 3 million, 4 million credit cards that people have of my brand, you know? Yeah, but how many people are actually using it, you know? So right. just removing those vanity metrics that allows you to be on a podcast, that allows you to be on uh, on a founder's event and show off your new sneakers and your, your new jacket. That I think that's what's going to have to be removed. And like Warren Buffett says, once the tide goes down, that goes down, you see who was swimming naked. I agree. And something that's very, like say, it's been fascinating for us to, to learn and personally for me is, is when we look at the, the data on social media, media usage in America is one of the highest. And what this is also meaning is that people are spending so much time on social media. I see a lot of entrepreneurs and people working in startups. They have over 10,000, 20,000 followers on Instagram, for instance. And this is a very different game that, like, you know, compared to Europe or in the U.S. They have been able to create a very nice social brand. And in some occasions, the entrepreneurs are able to get a little side money from their, their, their social media presence. So then that they raise a half a million dollars, they're living already comfortably, they buy those nice shoes. And then they just hike up their social media following. So then they keep this illusion up that they're making things pop. So this is, these are the, some of the concerns that we have now witnessed. And I'm, 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 I'm happy to see that the market has gone down and, you know, going towards a brink of a collapse. Not that bad. I'm exaggerating a little bit. But it's, it's a healthy correction that is taking place because we need to be able to build businesses that are fundamentally solid and can generate things, not only hype. And this is a good momentum that is taking on to Latin America. And this is why I'm like excited to see is that you keep investing in it because that's where I am optimistic with Bautista uh, specifically is because now people are focusing on building the engine. But on a, like a final thing that I would like to ask for you is, is, is that Mexico, you went to Tech Monterrey, but then you did your MBAs outside. I can see that. Is that a Harvard sign that you have Ale, there in the back? Looks very nice. Congrats on that. It looks very, very cool. Um, but a lot of people all around Latin America. But if we now focus on Mexico, I still like who has that? the, especially they come from, you know, great families, have a better financial situation or better scores. They go and study still in the U.S. or they go into foreign schools. What, do, are, what is going on in terms of the education system in Mexico for higher education for STEM subjects? Are we going to see deep tech companies coming from Mexico? Are we going to see people choosing and opting to st and study their MBAs in, for instance, Tech Monterrey, focusing in the country rather than going for the prestigious Harvard, Stanford, MIT, or going to Spain, like where you went, Claudio. What are you seeing that when this transition can happen? Yeah, of course. No, I think, and what I was going to say uh, before uh, in your other question, that what are the challenges that entrepreneurs are facing in Mexico or in Latin America? One of the things that I was going to say is talent uh, acquisition, right? Having the right talent for the challenges that you're going to be facing in your company. And I think that's still a concern. I think we are, uh, we'll still need to develop that talent, especially in tech uh, or in STEM, uh, whatever. But uh, we still are short of the, the talent needed to make uh, really that 
the leap forward. And there's there's a lot of things being done, especially with the opportunities of the uh, uh, the entrepreneurial opportunities and the opportunities with nearshoring in Mexico and all of that. And there for sure are uh, companies and, and uh, universities trying to tackle that problem. But I think that we are still lacking in that sense in Mexico. Um, and we are still uh, in a deficit of talents, of the talent needed to make this, uh, the, to meet the, 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 uh, the need of the companies that are being developed in yeah. Mexico, either yeah. by Mexicans or by people coming uh, to start a business in Mexico. So I think that's a really big challenge. And we are still going to need uh, uh, some time to, to be able to, to have a good, um, a good talent development pool here in Mexico. One thing I wanted to ask yeah, before sure. we move forward is that you mentioned nearshoring, and actually that's a very talked about topic. Are you guys seeing the effects of the nearshoring happening? We've seen it happening in Argentina, but you are guys both in Mexico, which is super close to the U.S. Are you seeing it influencing anything or are startups actually taking advantage of it over there? Yes, for sure. I think... Uh, uh... It's still um, early. I think we're going to see more of it in the coming years. But there is a lot of money flowing in uh, Mexico, uh, looking to really uh, uh, take advantage of this opportunity that we have. I think new training is something that we've always uh, have very much in mind in Mexico, but it's uh, a lot more present now. But uh, I also see uh, very good startups, and we have a unicorn in that uh, just uh, phase now ports that is doing a great job at that. And, and but uh, the the I think the the most important challenge that we have to take advantage of the new shoring opportunity is that we won't have the talent necessary in Mexico to deal with that. Uh, to deal with what uh, comes is is coming, right? Uh, we will need to import uh, talent to deal with all of the opportunities that that will be. Yeah, I I agree. And in, in terms of, I think the best thing that can happen to Mexico is uh, what I was saying at the beginning that there is um, diversity of uh, people involved, and I'm not just saying. Um, one man or whatever. It's just uh, what you want to see in an ecosystem that thrives is that the the person that gets the job done is the person that has the most uh, uh, chances of making it at a success. So uh, just an example, uh, when uh, my dad got, got diagnosed with cancer, uh, what I wanted is for him to be uh, treated by the best doctor possible. It wouldn't, it didn't matter if it was a female or a man or like a Mexican or Argentinian, uh, whoever. That still needs to happen in, in Mexico and Latin America where you see uh, people having equality of opportunity, access to those opportunities. And it doesn't matter if they have an MBA or if they went to either school, you just want to see the most capable people having the access to those opportunities. 
And I think uh, by uh, by the ecosystem, how it's uh, getting constructed and funds happening, like that they're investing in, in uh, general quality, for example, that's going to help a lot. But it's going to take time to be uh, something that we start seeing uh, not as a uh, not as, uh, as a must, but something that's natural that starts happening, you know. And um, at the end, I just believe that I'm having like uh, personality like Ale uh, or people in Shark Tank that have diverse backgrounds, uh, way of thinking that is uh, it inspires others to to know that they can also make it, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. In higher education, I think uh, what you were talking about the the MBAs and the people have that have access to this higher education and the future uh, founders and CEOs of, uh, of startups in Mexico. I think we are seeing more people stay in Mexico because the opportunities to uh, like uh, to to really have a good return on your on your work, on your investment, on your of your time, uh, is getting better. So more people are saying, "No, I'm yeah. not going to go somewhere else, do my MBA, uh, and lose two years of uh, developing of time that I can uh, have developing my company in Mexico, in Latam, and uh, taking advantage of the current uh, uh, trends and ecosystem uh, in Mexico." I, I've been seeing that a little bit more often where people are staying more and be, becoming entrepreneurs, developing their business and maybe doing an MBA in Mexico instead of just going out and going to those consulting jobs or uh, banking jobs that people were taking uh, maybe five years ago or, yeah, or more. Absolutely. And as a final sentence... I would like to ask from both of you is why sun keeps shining in Mexico, meaning that why people should come to Mexico and make things happen in Mexico. One sentence, one liner. Claudio, you want to start? Oh, it's, <laughs> it's, easy it's, one it's a hard one. It's super, super easy on, on this spot. You should come to Mexico, Lanham, because that's where the opportunity of the uh, next big thing is going to happen. I like it. Alejandra. What's your one-liner to the world from, as Claudia said, one of the new celebrities, the most known personas of Mexico? I think, first of all, Mexicans, we are, uh, we have a great culture. We're great people. You will uh, uh, for sure find a very warm uh, country that uh, is very open to receiving foreigners and people that come and, and it's a country where we historically always accepted talents and other places and embraced uh, that talent. And for sure, it's a land of opportunities. There is a lot still of low-hanging fruit to be grabbed in Mexico, and uh, and it's a fun place to do it as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Alejandra and Claudio, for participating today. It was a pleasure to have you in the show. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you both.